you have your Bible with you or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. New Testament book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. If you're a guest with us, we've been journeying along with Jesus through this gospel thinking about what it means to have Jesus as our king, and particularly in chapters 8, 9, and 10, what it means to follow Jesus along the way. And over and over again, in each chapter, Jesus has taught us the way of the cross. And this morning, we reach the final lesson in that class, the climax on the class of the cross. And so one more time, we will hear from Jesus what all of that means for you and me as believers, not only as our story, but how it should form and shape the way we live for Jesus. With all that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. This is the word of the Lord. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Safety first. Put on your safety glasses. Wear your steel-toed boots. Wear your work gloves. Safety first. I heard these words every shift that I worked at the Frito-Lay warehouse. Every afternoon at 12.59 before we punched in and got started for the day, we heard those two words, safety first. It didn't matter if you had worked at Frito-Lay for 25 years. It didn't matter if you were an expert. It didn't matter if the job you were doing was not particularly dangerous. Pepsi, which owns Frito-Lay, had an obligation to make sure their employees heard the message over and over again because it was that important. Friends, you may feel like after reading Mark chapter 10, that I am just getting up here every single week, four months, saying, safety first. And you want to get past this passage and section and get on to something new and hear a different story. That's the point. How do you think Jesus felt? As we have walked with him in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and he has to start every shift with safety first and come to find out the disciples, his employees, aren't listening and aren't wearing their steel-toed boots and trying to do ministry without recognizing safety first. This whole passage, this whole section is trying to get us in the shoes of the disciples This is what discipleship looks like. There is no new story. There is no new message. And over and over again, Jesus is trying to show us the cross as our only hope and as our only way of life. We only have the way of the cross. And friends, that's good news. What I have to give you today is only the cross and only the gospel. No matter where you are at, I am sure that is enough. Friends, we can never hear the gospel enough. Doesn't matter if you've been a church member for 75 years. Doesn't matter if you've read the book of Mark. It doesn't matter if you've memorized the book of Mark. The gospel is all we need. It's all we can really have. So this morning, I'm going to walk through the gospel I'm going to do something a little different with this passage. Maybe it'll help make the same message sound a little bit different, give you a different way to look at it. But before we jump into each point today, well, all I'm going to do is walk through the gospel. Four words that explain the gospel. And if nothing else, if you want to go home with something that you can use, you can use these four words to share the gospel with anybody in your life. You can take any passage 
any theological point, any idea in your life, any problem in your life, and walk through these four words and explain the gospel to somebody or to yourself. And so I hope that's helpful for you. But four words that share the gospel this morning. The first word always is God. I don't want to think about God and what we know of him in verses 32 to 34. So let's read those verses this morning. Mark writes, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Again, this is the third conversation Jesus has had about this. And there's a few new details that emerge. That's where we should put our attention. But the greatest shift, the greatest change in chapter 10 is the tone. Jesus is serious. He is determined. He is leading the way. Usually, the disciples get on ahead of him. Jesus is, is leading the pack, and the disciples are lagging behind. And twice, we find out the detail that they are on the way to Jerusalem. It's the first time the city has been name-dropped in the book of Mark. They are on the way to the city of God. Now, in the book of Psalms, there is a select group of songs about that. We actually went through those together one summer where the people of God are on their way to Jerusalem singing praises, ready to worship the Lord, songs of anticipation and celebration. But as Jesus walks with his people to Jerusalem, he is singing a different tune, a different melody. His songs on the way to Jerusalem are in the minor He is singing the song of the suffering servant. In verse 32, Mark tells us Jesus begins to tell them what was to happen to him. And we see something about God there. Don't miss it. God is the author of salvation. He is the one who has written this story from the beginning. Jesus knows what is going to happen, and he is telling his people what is going to happen. He will be handed over, this is new, to the Gentiles. And so Jesus already knows it's not just the Jewish people who he's called out in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It will be the Gentiles as well, and they're going to do four things, all new. They're going to mock him, spit him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Jesus is not only pointing towards the future and what is going to happen to him, but when he uses those four words, he is pointing back to Old Testament prophecy where every single one of these details are predicted by God, the author of our salvation. These are the songs Jesus is singing. Psalm 22, verse 7, the psalmist writes, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike 
and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then in verse 9 of that same chapter, they made his grave with the wicked. They killed him. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. As Jesus marches to Jerusalem, these are his songs of ascent. What is about to happen to him is not an accident. It is not an event that is going to happen to him. He is going to accomplish his story. His father wrote this story in eternity past. Too many people see the cross as a tragedy, as something that Jesus did not want, as something that God had to twist around to make it work out for good. That is not the truth, brothers and sisters. God did this for us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you just think for a minute about God's wisdom? Just for a moment, pause and consider the greatness of our God who wrote that story. We take that for granted. We know the story so well, we aren't amazed by it. We aren't looking at Jesus and his determination in awe. But God wrote that story. God created us to know him and made a way for us to belong to his kingdom. And one more thing that I want to encourage you with, something you can see about God in this passage. Maybe this will help someone. It's his patience. How many of us walk in the way to Jerusalem with all the pressure and intensity that must be on Jesus' shoulders would share this over and over and over again to people who aren't listening and show the same kind of patience as our Savior. We are those hard-headed, stubborn disciples who don't get the message quick enough. And in our own strength, we don't deserve to be heard. But God does not treat us according to what we deserve. Friend, you may feel like You're not good enough to come to God or that he's just done with you because you've messed too much, messed up too much. Friends, God is patient. Slow to anger. Quick to forgive. And if you've been on the fence whether God will receive you, you should see the Lord's patience in this passage. Jesus has made a way for us to belong to him. There's just one minor problem. And as you share the gospel, you need to have a problem. If you don't have a problem, you don't have good news. And the problem is always the same. You want some good news today? Hmm. The second word you need to share the gospel is man. The problem is always man. Now, ladies, don't get too excited. You're included in that word, too. The problem is us every single time. As an illustration, let's look at verses 35 to 42. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. We'll stop there. You should expect it by now. We've seen enough from these guys that nothing should surprise us. But it is still jarring if you really get into this story. Jesus, the Son of God, is having a conversation with these men about the cross and what he is going to do to fulfill all of God's promises for his people, to bring salvation. And left and right, they cannot help themselves but get in the way with the dumbest conversations possible. Peter tries to stop the cross from happening. The disciples try to keep kids away from Jesus and want to know who is the greatest. And Jesus, in his patience, shares the way of the cross. It's about sacrifice and serving others. And then the third time, Jesus talks about the cross and all that he's going to accomplish and the grace of God for salvation. And these guys have the nerve to come up to Jesus a third time with the all-important request that they get the best seats in heaven. Possibly, James and John see Peter make a fool of himself and think that the time is ripe to become the new leader of the gang, take advantage of of his stupidity, and, and, and get first dibs on the judgment seats in heaven. Sit at the right hand and the, the left hand of Christ. Do yourself a favor and don't just look at James and John and their stupidity and think, how silly. James and John are not only exposing a personal problem. They are exposing humanity's deepest problem. And the proof of that is how the rest of the 12 respond. Verse 41 When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They are frustrated. They are ticked off. They have had it with James and John. And they're not disappointed that James and John don't get it. They're mad that James and John beat them to the punch. (laughs) Twelve out of twelve disciples were selfish enough to hear the way of the cross and think, I want the best seat in heaven. A hundred percent of the guys that Jesus picked had that as their agenda. They hear the word glory and they think about an opportunity for honor and power. James and John believe that the kingdom is at hand, 
But they hear that good news and want to position themselves to benefit at the expense of anybody. For them, following Jesus goes hand in hand with their ambition, with their wants, with their greatest desire. As David Garland writes, when, while Jesus is talking about all that he is about to give, the disciples come with a shopping list of all they want to give. Just consider how many times we talk about the gospel and the dominant train of thought is on what we receive and what we get out of our relationship with Jesus. We're not all that different. As Jesus tries to change their way of thinking, he tells them that they're acting like pagan dictators. Verse 42, Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You guys are no better than Caesar. Jesus is saying to James and John. You think the kingdom is your throne, your opportunity to be in charge, to get your way. Friends, Jesus is is calling out the idolatry of self. Our desires, our selfish desires to be on top, to make our way happen which I don't think I need to argue, happens all the time. And Jesus is saying, if we look at following Jesus that way, if we look at the Christian life that way, if we look at the church and ministry that way, if we look at our relationships that way, we are just like those pagan dictators. Jesus is saying, you're not going to like to hear this, In our selfishness, in our sin, there is a Vladimir Putin in every single one of our hearts. And that is a huge problem. Friends, how often do we find ourselves coming to Jesus just like this? God speaks through his word, and the first question on our lips and hearts is, well, what what do I get? What does this mean for me? How many examples can I bring up of, of ministry in the church, whether it's in the pulpit or in a community or, or in, the, in a committee where these opportunities are just a platform for self-promotion to just gain an advantage so that we can make sure that our program and our choice and And our preference happens. This is not the way of the cross. It's the way of the pagan church. James chapter 3 verse 14. James says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Later on, we're going to get to it. Jesus describes his work as ransom. And why that's important is the idea behind a ransom is slavery. 
It's a payment to free slaves out of their captivity. Romans chapter 6, Paul calls us slaves of sin and slaves of impurity. Titus chapter 3, we are slaves to passions and pleasures. Do you know what our biggest problem is? It's what holds us captive. It's the God of me. It's the God of self. There's no greater idol, there's no greater danger, there's no greater threat than our view of who we are ourselves. That's what stands in the way of James and John in the way of the cross. It's what stands in the way for you and me. Where do you see that idol show up in your life? Where do you see this desire to come out on top? Where do you see this desire to ensure, to make sure that you get what is coming to you? It's there somewhere. If, if that's not in your life, you need to come talk to me and tell me how I can get to that level. All of us have this deep inside. Allow James and John in their silly little interruption to speak to you, to wake us up. When we think about what it is in it for me, this is not the way of the cross. Friends, you might think that this sounds really harsh. Not very helpful. Don't think that you would use this when you share the gospel with someone. If you don't share this part, you don't share the gospel. And if you don't share this part, no one will ever be saved. In order to be safe, you have to have a problem to be safe from. In order for you to be safe, you have to know the slavery of self that holds you captive. The good news of the gospel starts with the bad news of the gospel. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, God promises he will render to each one according to his works. And then in verse 8, he says, for those who are self-seeking like James and John and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is where the God of self goes. But the good news of the gospel is there's a third word. What solves our problem? Christ. It is not us. It is not our works. It is not becoming a better person. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the third time we've seen the way of the cross, but it's the first time we've seen the why. It's the only time in this school that Jesus gives us the reason that he came. And the specific word he used is ransom. The only time this specific word for ransom is used in the New Testament. It is a special word. It is a unique word. Jesus does not use it flippantly, but he brings it here to the table. It is used in the 
Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about the redemption of God's people, particularly in the slavery in Egypt, but also at a spiritual level. Jesus says, do you want to know why I came? The reason of me even being here is to pay the penalty for your slavery to self. I am here to make the ransom payment. This is the gospel. Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Romans chapter 3 verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, there's only one ransom, and when Jesus pays it, it is paid in full. And we've got to get past this idea that when we do something good, it somehow adds to that payment or makes up for the lack in that payment. As if we do something nice for somebody, God decides to look at us better than he already did through the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus is our ransom. While we lived for ourselves, Jesus gave up his life. While we jockeyed for prestige, Jesus left his seat of honor. While we exploit our privileges and one another, Jesus refused to exploit his rights as son that belonged to him. And while we were yet selfish sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of James and John's petty requests, don't miss the picture of Jesus. Locked in. Focused on Jerusalem. Knowing what he has to go through. Dealing with this nonsense from his disciples, ready to go and die for them. These guys, in their silliness, in their foolishness, he's ready to be flogged for James. He's ready to be mocked for John. Friend, he's ready to be spat upon for you. He's ready to die for us. Hebrews 12 verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you got this far in a conversation with someone and shared these three words with them, God created us to be in a relationship with him. But man fell from God, lived for himself. But Christ lived for us and died for us and rose again. You might think that you shared the gospel. 
but we haven't yet. Because the way of the cross and the message of the cross is not just information to know. It is a truth to embrace, to believe, and make your own. And so the fourth word that we use to share the gospel and that is impressed upon us is response. There must be a response. It can be yes, it can be no, but there must be a response. And as Jesus calls us to the way of the cross, there are a few responses that I must impress upon you this morning. And to do that, we're going to look at verses 43 to 44. After Jesus has shared the false leadership of the Gentile lords, verse 43, he says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slaves of all. When a call upon you to make two responses this morning. One that is initial, that some of us have already made, but some have not. And another is ongoing. And friends, hear that. I don't care if you've been in church for 99 years and a day. This is your response to the way of the cross if you want to follow Jesus. But first, the initial response. Friends, after you've heard this good news, do not leave today without letting the ransom Jesus paid count for you. Make that work count for your life and your heart and your soul. I told you that ransom brought us back to the exodus and the redemption that Israel had from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, there's an important picture. During the Passover, we see the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This last plague that God's about to drop on Egypt is such that Israel needed to take a step to be protected from the wrath of God. And this provision that God gave Israel was a lamb killed, slain. And the blood of the lamb had to be applied to the door for the people of Israel. Notice, if the people of Israel did not take Jesus at, or God at his word and did not take the blood of the lamb, and apply it to their personal door, they would be met with the same fury as the people of Egypt. They could not just believe that God was good and that God would redeem his people. They had to take the blood and apply it to their door. Friend, you can know that God made you to be in a relationship with him, and you can know that you fell from that relationship through your sin and that opportunity for, for life with God through your own sin. And you can know that Jesus came to die for you and that his blood was shed 
for your sins. And you can know that God rose him from the grave. But if you do not take his blood and apply it to the door of your heart and soul, God's fury still rests on your shoulders. You've got to make that ransom count for you. I don't want to know if you can leave today and tell me God, man, Christ's response. I want to know, can you say without a shadow of doubt that when you meet God in heaven, the blood of Jesus counts for you? And only you know deep down if it does. I don't want to know if you know what the gospel is. I want to know if you know the gospel counts for you. That Jesus is your lamb. He is your ransom. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I call on you before God to make a response. Turn from your sin and put your trust in what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, did to cleanse you from your sin. But if you think that's the end of the story and the end of the gospel, you are also wrong. Because there is an ongoing response that this story makes that calls us to make over and over again. He is calling you and me to respond to the gospel. Friends, I've said this many times and I'm going to say it until it shows up in our lives, which probably is going to be when we die. The cross cannot just be our story. The cross must be our shape. It must change the way we act. It must change the way we think. It must change the way we live. That's the point in this this section where the disciples don't get it. They may even get the story part, but obviously the shape's not there. By the way they're acting, by the way they're talking, by the way they're arguing, there's proof. They still need to be formed by the cross. They still need to be shaped by Jesus' sacrifice. When Jesus challenges James and John, he says, the Gentiles may lead this way. But then in verse 43, maybe the most important words for us, brothers and sisters who belong to Jesus, it shall not be so among you. Let's read those verses again, verse 43 to 45. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, the cross I'm about to take is the template for how you must lead. It is the shape of how you must relate to one another and serve one another. Friends, if Jesus came to serve, 
how much more should we? If the king of kings became last, should we be first? Now, you and I cannot pay anybody's ransom, but we can sacrifice. We can give up our preferences and our wants and our desires to build someone else up. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus, this question is for you. Where in your life does the cross need to take shape? What relationship, what sphere of life, what responsibility, what opportunity is in your life where you are still leading like those old Gentiles? Trying to get your way, trying to exercise authority to make sure you get what you need, what you want, trying to make happen the way you want it to happen. Where are you trying to put your foot down and get what's coming to you? I don't know the answer to that. It can look a lot of different ways for everybody in this room in lots of different seasons. Where do you find that struggle? Look at Jesus. Look at the way of the cross. And lay down your life. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve, you don't have to know Plato and Aristotle, you don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. And friends, if God's grace and his love in Christ on the cross has regenerated you and given you something to live for, listen to those words. You can be great. But it is not through the way we think, by looking like Jesus and looking like his cross. May we leave today shaped by his death, giving ourselves to one another for the glory of our King. Let's pray.